Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. So today I have another guest on the show and I am speaking to Jake Biggs, a nutritional medicine practitioner, nutrition coach and corporate nutrition speaker all the way from Sydney, Australia. Now, Jake developed severe anorexia nervosa at the age of 14 years, and then over the course of 13 years, he experienced 20 hospitalizations and borderline fatal death. Throughout this time in his life, he encountered firsthand the devastating impact of anorexia on his mental and physical health. But specifically, Jake recognized what happens when the body is deprived of high quality nutrition. Jake describes his previous relationship with food as abysmal. Jake had a turning point in his recovery where he was fed up with a never-ending cycle of hospitalizations and he identified goals that began to draw him towards recovery from anorexia. Exposure therapy, which you will be talking more about in this episode, was an integral part of this. And if all this didn't seem enough to contend with, Jake then developed a grade three frontal lobe astrocytoma brain tumor. This required an urgent brain operation and subsequent radiotherapy treatment where he lost all his hair and had extremely poor energy, mental clarity and tiredness. After this, Jake's career goal was to educate himself on using nutrition as medicine for the human body. Despite suffering from multiple seizures, he soldiers on and completed a Bachelor of Health Science Nutrition and Dietetic Medicine degree in September 2021, graduating with Ducks Honours. It is now Jake's life mission to assist individuals to restore, rebalance and reinvigorate their health by using evidence-based medicine principles for long-term longevity. I'm really looking forward to speaking with Jake today to hear more about his story and his incredible journey in overcoming the many obstacles he has faced along the recovery road to his work today as a nutritional medicine practitioner and supporting others to heal. Let's get to the conversation. Are you wondering if your binge or emotional eating habits have triggered hormone and gut issues? Low energy, fatigue, bloating, brain fog, weight gain, more PMS, more menopause symptoms, more cravings, poor sleep, the list goes on. Did you know some of your hormone and gut symptoms can also fuel your emotional eating behaviors? Yes, they can. That's why it's so important to address the roots of your physical symptoms while working on the emotional mindset and self-love work. If you're ready to address each piece, be sure to check out Amber Omaniac emotional eating, digestive and hormone expert with nine years of experience helping over 1200 women with support on all of the above and without diets, without restriction or any quick fixes. Amber will do a full health assessment and help you get to the root of your symptoms with hormone testing, gut health assessing and of course support to help your body come back to balance with your mind and soul. Visit amberapproved.ca to book a 30-minute body freedom call or check out the No Sugar Coating podcast today 
to learn more about the connections between our relationship with food, mindset and our health. Hi Jake, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Absolute pleasure. Oh, so great to have you here. So Jake, could you firstly please introduce yourself to the listeners? Yes, so my name's Jake. I'm 29 years of age now and I'm from sunny Sydney, Australia. (laughs) Okay, well, great. I feel very envious, actually, because we are in the British spring over here, which (laughs) is actually really, really beautiful. But I think I would still rather be in Sydney. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the weather fluctuates. Like last week, it was torrential rain and then it's sun. It's a bit erratic, but we have sun today, which is what's good. Okay, good to hear. Okay, Jake. (laughs) So, you know, one of the reasons that you've reached out to me and, you know, coming on the podcast today is to, you know, talk about your story. You know, you've recovered from anorexia nervosa and also a tumour as well. Like you've, You've been through quite a lot, haven't you, in the last few years? Yeah, it's been a hell of a journey. At 29 years of age, I still can't really believe when I sit here today how much I've gone through, but come out the other side. And I was hoping to, you know, I reached out to you, Harriet, and to show, to explain to people sort of my journey, speak through that and sort of how I went through the other side and sort of my treatment journey. And I'd love to share some thoughts of, you know, how I got to where I am now. Sure. So, Jake, could you sort of take us back, really, and just explain a bit about how you came to develop anorexia and, you know, some of the things that maybe sort of triggered that and, you know, what was going on for you? Yeah, so I think it was around 2007, so I was around 15 years of age. I went to the primary school that I had was quite overwhelming and a lot like the I got a little bit bullied. There was a lot of people. It was quite overwhelming for me. I was quite timid at that time, very anxious wasn't really wanting to speak up to others about myself. So I remember, so it was a long time ago, but I remember very clearly there was a switch that sort of wanted me to get, so reducing food and over-exercising just to get sort of attention that things were not so good for me. And throughout the time, it was about when I was 15 years of age. And then over the next sort of five years, it was quite serious for me. I dropped a lot of weight very quickly and then I had multiple hospitalizations throughout that time obviously what I've experienced and now we're coming from now I definitely found that when I was getting lighter and lighter the compulsions the obsessionality towards food was getting worse and worse so it was very tricky for me throughout that time stressful for my family as well and I think what I really saw throughout that time particularly from 2007 to 2013 was that unfortunately in Australia, there is a lot of emphasis on sort of medical attention for anorexia and eating disorders, but there wasn't so much psychological intervention. Mm. And that was sort of the missing link for me where I had obviously a lot of issues with self-confidence, self-esteem. And because I really wasn't able to be in a good sort of therapeutic psychological relationship, whether it was psychologist or psychiatrist, that was sort of problematic for me. So it was very scary for me, sort of those first five years. I was very young. I was very scared. But I think one of the turning points was in 2013. So it was when I it was on to like my 18th hospitalization at that time and things were just really bad for me. I was going from one hospital to the next. And I got an opportunity to go to Los Angeles in the United States from, unfortunately, the program is not 
available anymore. They had to close it down. It was the UCLA Eating Disorder Program. So that was in Los Angeles. I was given an opportunity to go there because I think I was just sort of sinking in Australia. And then I got there in 2013, actually stayed there for about a year. And it was definitely a turning point for me because I think just the magical things anorexia or eating disorders is finding the balance between medical attention, but the psychological attention, because obviously that what I found is that you can't just do one or the other. They have to be synergistically. And at the program, it really was emphasized that there was a lot of psychological intervention. You were meeting with psychologists, you meeting with social workers. And I, that was something that I'd been screaming out for, hadn't had that before. So then throughout that time, I developed a really good relationship with a psychologist there who I'm still in touch with today, who really helped me sort of go through my history, but also how to move forward. And I had never in my life throughout, you know, my teens, never heard of, you know, behavioral strategies or any coping strategies. And at that time, there was a lot of emphasis in the States, in particularly on cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. And throughout that time with me learning those coping skills on how to manage myself and how to manage my emotions, manage my anxiety, that was a really turning point for me as well because it's the first time in my life I actually learned about, you know, how do we cope with, you know, when, you know, the anorexia nervosa, you know, voice in the head is just through the roof. Like how do you deal with obsession, with compulsions? How do you cope in those things? So that was a really good turning point for me. And I felt like after that time when coming back to Australia, there was sort of a new lease of life for me. But then unfortunately, two years later in 2015, I developed a brain tumour. So it was a grade three frontal lobe astrocytoma. And that was also a very scary thing for me because I was at the gym at that time and I was getting multiple seizures. And then it was, we thought, I just thought it was a one freak accident. But then it turned out to over consecutive days, there was multiple seizures. I got an MRI scan in the hospital here and they found out there was a tumor. So it was all very stressful for me because I wasn't, you know, recovered fully from my anorexia. That I still had issues with my weight, issues with that. And then when I had the tumor, they had to have, I had to have surgery. And then unfortunately, after the surgery, luckily I didn't have to have chemotherapy, but I had to have radiotherapy. And obviously anyone that would listen who knows anyone that had sort of chemo or radiotherapy, it's incredibly taxing. So I lost maybe three quarters of my hair. It was very hard for me energy-wise to get out of bed. It was, you know, I was very, very fatigued. And then obviously not eating very much quantity as well. It was obviously a double whammy for me. So throughout that time, it was definitely difficult for me. Unfortunately, what happened is that as I have still not recovered fully from the anorexia and that the tumor as well, things, you know, I was really on the verge of another hospitalization. Like things were getting quite serious for me. But I don't know exactly. It's hard for me to pinpoint, obviously, because it's now three years ago when it's 22. But something, there was a switch where something like I had to make a very clear decision in my life. The very clear decision was I can either be going in and out of hospital, my life being ruined. It would just be catastrophic for me because they were the I think anyone that has been in hospital was obviously incredibly isolating I was in there for several months and I think there was something there was a turning point where I just said you know what I'm just going to do absolutely everything in my power to find a way of managing myself getting my eating up getting my psychology up 
to make sure that I never end up in hospital anymore. I just said enough's enough. Like after 20 hospitalizations, I'm like, I can't ever see a hospital again. And then I got some nutrition help from a nutritionist and I was doing some training as well. And then fortunately, since that time, I haven't had any compulsions to want to reduce my food or overexercise, which is really good for me. And now you know, throughout the time I was obviously with being surrounded by a lot of people suffering from the condition, there was a lot of talk in the sense of, is this going to be the rest of my life? If I recover, am I still going to go downhill again? But I can definitely categorically say to anyone that's out there that as hard as it is, there is a way of recovering so that you get to a point of healthy enough weight and that you're psychologically stable where you don't have that compulsion to sort of derail. So that's sort of the very, that's a very long story, but it's very much shortened because there's obviously so much that happened in between. But I think the main message is that where I've come from to where I'm now, that I can definitely, you know, say to others that it's definitely a way of, even if you're, you know, it's very severe of moving away out of hospital and maybe moving away towards a better life. Well, thank you so much for talking us through that, Jake. And if it's okay, perhaps I can pick up on a few things from your story, which I think the listeners would find so valuable to, you know, hear more about. Yeah, sure. Sure. So back in the beginning, you were sort of saying that in a way the anorexia was, I guess, probably consciously or unconsciously a way of communicating to others, perhaps that something wasn't right. But then obviously there was this real lack as well of psychological intervention and helping you make sense of that but you know when you sort of look back now as well was it a bit of a kind of cry for help or wanting people just to know that you were struggling yeah definitely like I mean because I'm you know genetically because I'm sort of a timid person I'm shy I'm not you know out there not overly confident I was definitely suffering I was in a time in my life that I was suffering and definitely I felt that the anorexia developed quite quickly in a sense of yeah I need like I'm crying out for help if I can't tell others that I'm really struggling I need to some unfortunately show physically that I'm struggling to get sort of people's attention it's obviously it's a very sad thing when I look at it now that why couldn't I just tell my parents really and I need to move schools I need to get help but I couldn't mm-hmm. do that so then definitely that's sort of it found a way it's in that I had that sort of kink in my brain where I could, and it sort of came in and then it sort of, yeah, derailed quite quickly, unfortunately. I think you're really not alone there because I think for all of us sometimes it is quite hard, isn't it, to communicate through words and perhaps as well we don't want to kind of burden people around us if we see they're struggling or, you know, sometimes we can feel so responsible of, you know, just finding our own way through of coping. And it can be really hard, can't it, to say things out loud and particularly at that young age as well. Yeah, particularly like, you know, I was just 15 years of age, you know, I hadn't really hit adolescence. I hadn't, you know, been, hadn't really known how to lead life. I didn't, you know, I was think I was sort of really scared and I didn't, yeah, that's definitely right. Like I didn't want to overburden my parents, you know, I didn't want to overburden my twin sister. It was just a way where I didn't want to, Unfortunately, what happens with anorexia and the condition is that you don't want to overburden others. You don't want to worry others sort of in the beginning. Or that's how it was for me. But then, you know, it turns around 360 that everyone just gets totally panicked around you where you're not really wanting that. You're just wanting things to 
try to stay as calm as possible for you know to get help but then everyone sort of panics and it's a panic station so unfortunately that's the way it works you know you want to get sort of attention but then the attention goes to triple panic mode where not the best decisions get made yeah no that makes a lot of sense and Jake can you explain to people as well because I think many people understandably really struggle to understand how anorexia can feel safe how it can help you cope and Mm. clearly it caused you a great deal amount of distress physically and Mm. mentally but Mm. can you explain perhaps how it was also something that saved you at the time and what the benefits I'm saying that kind of in like inverted commas yeah yeah I suppose what I found in my experience was at that time the anorexia sort of in my sort of implanted in my mind and obviously like I have to you know listeners will need to understand that when someone's so young and they feel like they've got compulsions in their brain that they want to like throw food in the rubbish bin and you know tell others that they had their lunch or whatever like that's a really really it was emotionally like it was scary for me because I you know Mm. I was always a kid that was playing soccer all the time that was extremely happy just didn't have a sort of felt like a worry in the world when I was much younger and then all of a sudden I have these sort of compulsions that I have to do these things so what I found that with my anorexia and particularly in my brain was that it was really tricky for me. Like it really would try to play tricks on my brain in the sense of I needed to tell people that I was having lunch. I needed to tell people that I wasn't over-exercising because that's the way like it's going to help you. So it was sort of like a catch-22 where it's sort of trying to, in my mind, I can remember that time I was like, this is what's going to release your anxiety. This is what's going to make you feel better, you know, throwing Mm. your food away or whatever it was, but it was actually doing the exact opposite. And I can definitely feel about that throughout my time with the condition that there was always this temptation, you do this and then it will release your anxiety. You do this and then you'll feel better. And that was sort of the way that I couldn't because I didn't have the psychological help. Plus, when it, obviously, the lower your weight goes, the stronger the urges are. So it was a really difficult time because how I found that I didn't find throughout the time of the condition that I felt that any particular times that it was anything helpful, like all I was yeah. sort of the compulsions that I would do, that there wasn't sort of any benefits besides from just me being in more misery. Like so I definitely, I can't like wholeheartedly say that anything in my past in sort of the anorexia voice was anything beneficial. Like there wasn't actually one moment mm. that I can think of, I did that and then helped that because there was just been more repercussions for me. So I think that's something to really think about when you're in the Mm. trenches, when things are so severe, like when the thoughts, compulsions are so high and you think that it's going to help you and relieve you. you I mean, that's just categorically what I can say, that you have to just fight every tooth and nail, get whatever help possible because each time I would do the compulsion, each time that I would do whatever it was, in sort of releasing, it would just make things so much worse. And then the next time trying to resist it, it was just, you know, a carry-on effect. Mm, So helpful. So it sounds like in a way you had fleeting relief from the anxiety by carrying out the compulsion, but actually it's like kind of 
bottomless pit, isn't it? You kind of, it doesn't actually, it doesn't stick around in terms of like you feeling reassured. You have to kind of repeat those things again and again and again. And it just sounds like such a horrible, relentless cycle to be in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, whatever compulsion anyone, you know, with my, I can remember so vividly about throwing food in the rubbish bin or hiding stuff or like blatantly lying to others. Like each time I would do that, and I was being sort of inundated with, you know, anxiety and thoughts that I need to do this and then temporarily it will release it. But then obviously is, you know, with learning, you know, now with, you know, thinking about it and, you know, speaking to psychiatrists, speaking to sort of brain specialist experts, you know, I, you know, it's very clear that each compulsion that you do, you know, the brain, you know, the wire in the brain just gets stronger and stronger and stronger so that each time you do the compulsion, it makes it almost impossible to stop it the next time. And I think about over these years, that's like a thousand compulsions. So it's almost like the main message I can say to anyone that, you know, starts with compulsions and feeling that, yes, like I think like for maybe a nanosecond, not even in a second, but a nanosecond, it would be temporary relief, but then it would just, the next time it would be. So, I mean, the main thing that I can, you know, ever say to anyone that, you know, when it comes to compulsions that you just have to do everything possible to not do it. And then over time it will get easier. But if you could just continue and continue to do the compulsions when someone obviously is severe or not severe, it's just going to make it harder and harder. Yeah. So can you say, Jake, more about the exposure therapy that you found really helpful and just kind of how did that work? Because I guess when you're initially embarking on recovery, it must have felt extremely overwhelming to deal with all the different compulsions. So, you know, where did you start? Can you sort of talk us through that process a bit? Yes, definitely not in the first five years in in Australia. (laughs) I never got, never even heard of the word of exposure therapy, never even heard of what CBT or DBT is. Definitely not in those five years, but definitely that started at UCLA when I was with a psychologist and that she was sort of explaining to me what exposure therapy was. And I was trying to get my head around it. And I just couldn't. I remember so clearly that time I looked at her and I said, are you serious? Like, how am I going to do this, cope with this severe backlash and then just move forward? Like, it was just, it seemed to me it was completely foreign to me. Like, I just, I actually couldn't even get my head around the thought of not doing the compulsion, whatever it was, if it's over-exercising, whether if it's eating a normal amount, I just couldn't get over like how that would work. And she explained to me, and that's where what I think what is really good for with people with anorexia is education. Because if you're not educated on how the brain works, how compulsions happen, how to stop the compulsions, it's very hard. So when she explained to me very clearly that what you need to do is that you don't do the compulsion. Mm-hmm. And when you don't do the compulsion, you don't do any safety behaviors. And, you know, for example, if you want to go to a restaurant and you need to have a meal there, a safety behavior would be you'd call them up. What's the ingredients? How much of the ingredients? How this is going to fit into my meal plan? So not doing anything like that, not checking over checking the menu and that side of things. So not doing anything that's going to make temporary relief but it's not going to be long standing. So the first thing with exposure therapy that I found, what I need to get my head around is that 
I actually need to not do the compulsion. And I just, when I got my head around that, okay, I don't do the compulsion. And the next thing was working out, okay, cool. So if I don't do this compulsion, what do I do? Because Mm -hmm. my anxiety is going to go through the roof. I'm going to feel like it's going to be crazy for me. And that's when the CBT and DBT came in, in learning those coping strategies, whether if it's writing your thoughts down, the most powerful thing that I found, particularly because of my previous, you know, with my severe anxiety that I had, was the dialectical behavioral therapy component, in particularly the distraction component. Because what I found really quickly was that with the compulsion, and I think going back, the first thing that someone needs to do before they do exposure therapy is to be in the right headspace that need to be mm-hmm. actively wanting to get on the recovery process because there's obviously no, it's very, very difficult on trying to do exposure therapy with someone when they're not in the headspace of number one, not understanding it, but number two, not wanting to do it. So I think the first thing is that you need to be in a headspace to know exposure therapy is the king of recovery. But then also what I found was that distraction was the best thing ever for me because what distraction was so good for me is that the anxiety was so high that I would do activities afterwards, whether it's going for with my dad in Los Angeles, going for a walk, going to a soccer game, being with my sister, watching TV. If you can do anything that gets your brain not thinking about the anxiety and that your brain, it's like anything. If you're watching this movie that is so encapsulating you just can't get your eyes off it the brain hasn't got a chance of thinking about the anxiety and thinking about like that and then it's very clearly that what I found was that each time that I wouldn't do the compulsion it was just it came quite quickly I felt like you know when I was going to restaurants in Los Angeles the first time I couldn't you know my anxiety was through the roof but then, you know, with four or five times, just things just got easier and easier. It's like with anything in life, you know, if you want to go sky, if you someone's terrified, completely terrified of flying, they can't go on airplanes, they think it's going to crash, they're going to die. If you go on the first airplane once, your anxiety is going to go through the roof. But if you stick it out over 10, 20 times, you don't even think about it. It's like when someone drives, you know, with the traffic lights. Like you don't think it would be a total chaos in the world (laughs) if they decided to change the traffic lights from green being (laughs) instead of green being go, green would be stop and red would be green because they'll just be crashes because the brain is so wired that it's just a part of us. So going back to the exposure therapy, what I definitely found, whether if it's it can be anything which is really good, whether if it's, you know, over-exercising, whether if it's, you know, under-eating, getting eating right. The main thing, it's obviously different things that are going to be more helpful to others, but I can definitely say that the distraction component is the most beneficial for me. Well, thank you for sharing. And I think what's so valuable for people to hear is how high your anxiety level obviously was and how in the trenches you were, but how you did, you know, how you were able to expose yourself to some of these anxieties. And like you said, fairly quickly, even, you started to feel a bit better and your anxiety was reduced. I think it's just great to hear that because I think when we think about doing that academically, it's a very different thing, isn't it, to putting it into practice. And I think like we're describing, you're kind of doing the do. That's the work, isn't it? That's scary, but that is the real work, actually, putting it into practice. 
Yeah, exactly. Like I found like, you know, obviously psychology, having a psychologist, having a psychiatrist is like critical. You need the psychological Mm -hmm. intervention. You need to be able to cope how to move forward. But if you don't do that exposure, if you don't do sort of those methods, you know, the changing physically sort of things, it's not going to go anywhere. I found that, you know, there was a lot of, particularly in my youth where I was finding that I was doing so much talking, so much talking with a psychoanalyst, with another psychologist, it was, you know, it really wasn't flicky. It wasn't doing much because you can do all the talk you want about, you know, the anxiety about, you know, I've got these issues, but if you don't put this into action, it's going to really fester and it's going to really be difficult for me. But I think definitely with the exposure therapy, what I, we're definitely looking back at it now. It's obviously you need to be in a psychological headspace on wanting to actively cope and do it. And I think I'm quite a driven person. I'm quite determined in if I put my mind to something I can achieve it. And particularly that I was in a stage where I had to make a sort of very clear decision where I needed to move forward. Otherwise, this would just be the rest of my life in and out of hospital. And I think definitely the exposure therapy was the absolute king out of anything. Mm, Really fascinating to hear. Do you think, Jake, as well, I'm curious, like it sounds like you had like a lot of more insight-based therapy perhaps before that. Yep. Do you think having the more insight-based therapy, like I get in a way perhaps that didn't bring about the active change, but do you think, would have you been able to do the exposure therapy if you hadn't done the insight therapy first? Like, was it an important part of the process, do you think? Yeah, it's obviously it's a very difficult thing when I get asked that, you know, how important was the psychological Mm. throughout that time, the psychoanalytic learning about history, my family. And honestly, it wasn't the most important thing. Like I can definitely feel that, yeah, it was sort of good for me to let out, you know, how it was for me as a school, you know, that sort of that I was overwhelmed and these are the issues that I have with friends and family. But I can definitely feel that now if I sort of moved quite quickly in the sense of learning the coping strategies, learning about the exposure, it would have, you know, cut out a large chunk of time. But then it's obviously hard for me because to look back, I was so young, like, you know, I didn't, because I was 15, like starting, it just, it was, and things were, you know, when I was medically unwell, you know, my heart rate Mm -hmm. was very low, you know, things were just very scary. So at that time, there's only, you know, you have to, the anorexia that I found is that you can only, you know, there's, you just need to like deal with one thing at a time. And I couldn't, you know, be medically unwell and thinking of coping strategies, you know, because, what I found was that when I found, particularly when I was at a really low weight and when I'm underweight, you know, my brain couldn't work. Like my brain couldn't function properly. Like I couldn't comprehend things. I couldn't, I was just very stuck. And I think that, yeah, the first thing is that I needed, you know, I have to get weight recovered, being able to sort of think properly. But mm. I think the talking was good, but it's hard for me to very clearly say, was it really helpful or was it not helpful because of how young I was and mm. how medically unwell I was? You know, for someone that develops anorexia and is not severely unwell, is not in hospital, not emaciated, it's a different story because the brain can still function fine and you know, can be able to 
take on information. But because I was so medically unwell, you know, looking back, if I tried to learn coping strategies, it, it wouldn't probably be the right thing. That's a very long answer to your question. Yeah, I think it's really helpful. I think what I find fascinating about working in this field as well is I think everyone's journey is so individual. And I do truly believe in a way that each human being is the expert of themselves. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, just thank you for sharing. I think, you know, it's just really, really interesting. Yeah, sure. So, Jake, what I wanted to ask you as well is it sounds like you got as well to a bit of a turning point where you thought, actually, I can either like live my life in and out of hospital in this horrible, Mm. relentless cycle, or maybe I could do something different. Mm. And I know for you kind of like having goals and, you know, perhaps something bigger than the illness that really Mm. helped you kind of take that road less traveled, maybe to take that kind of alternative route. Yeah, I think definitely very clearly that when it came to that time, because I had so many admissions And I could, you know, at that time in hospital, like was the worst stage of my entire life, like by a country mile, it was worse than having radiotherapy, worse than anything because of how isolated it was. And I got to a point where it was just break, you know, it was just either I move forward, I get help, like the right help, I make changes, or this is going to be in and out of hospital the rest of my life. And there was, like there's people that I was in hospital with that one girl was 65 years old. And when I spoke to her, she was just in a hospital, like for the rest of, like that's all because she she was so entrenched. Like that's the only Mm -hmm. thing that I could do. I was probably at that time where I was thinking this is going to be me. But then there was some, like I can't think the exact moment, there was just a switch in my brain that sort of says like, no, like I, I, this can't be the rest of my life. Like I need a life bigger than this. I was told that I'm an extremely intelligent guy. I'm extremely smart. I've got so much life ahead of me. I'm very likable. And then something just switched where I was like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Like I just need to move forward. And I think that's the main thing sort of with recovery, you know, with speaking to people is that there was just this switch that was just like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Like I need a different Mm -hmm. life. And I think it's very hard to get to that stage. I don't know if it's because I was so down after so many admissions But that's the sort of the turning point where just wanting to actively have a different life, a life that's not in a hospital ward being, you know, told by nurses what to do, when to do. Yeah, really inspiring to hear that. And I think really emphasizes the point as well that you have to kind of get to that branch in the road yourself don't you no one can make you do that no one can force you to recover I mean people can support you of course and be your cheerleader and encourager but you yourself have to get to that point where you're deciding actually I want to take the different route now yeah definitely like you need to be at that headspace as okay this is going to be excruciating this is a deadly condition but I'm going to move heaven on earth to have a different life And I didn't think it was possible after so many admissions. I was getting so, you know, frustrated and I was just like, this is going to be me forever. Like, I'm just going to be all my, I'll have no friends. All my family would just visit me in hospital. I'll have nothing, no career. And I think definitely that what I found is that 
when people would try to change me and people would try to sort of tell me, you know, I need to do this, I need to do that, like you need, it wasn't helpful because it would just reinforce that I was just more and more unwell and I needed more and more help. But when I sort of independently would do this myself, would be able to move forward, obviously things help in the sense of having, you know, the access to, you know, outstanding psychological intervention, outstanding nutritionists, that's all, you know, an added bonus. But you just anyone mm. who's, you know, has the condition, whether if it's severe, not severe, the turning point needs to be from within. Being within is that things are so bad, but I, you know, deserve a different life. Like it's really interesting actually where I think back on it now with the hospital admissions, you know, with the people that I was there, all these, you know, these Girls and guys, I think for me, I was very, you know, there was obviously, you know, each time there was maybe one other guy than me, it was very, very female dominant. But I definitely found that was more, the most star-striking thing for me was how intelligent these people were. Like just beyond the years, the way the language they would speak, the way, you know, they were just extremely kind to you. Like these are really switched on people. And I think that's obviously really sad as well for me that a lot of people that suffer from this horrible condition of anorexia or any eating disorder, you know, they obviously don't deserve it, but they just have so much to offer in life. And I think that's obviously heartbreaking for a lot of families when they see their son or daughter having so much potential but being so entrenched, which is just a side note when I'm looking back on it now, but definitely going back to sort of the turning point needs to be coming from within and having the right sort of environment around you. But what I found was that even if you don't have the best family support, even if you don't have the best social support, like there is a way around it, you know, you'd be able to educate yourself and being able to cope with the exposure therapy that I think a lot of people that I spoke to a while ago and feel like, you know, I don't have friends, you know, I have, you know, my dad's passed away. I only have my mum. Like, how am I going to do this? But I definitely found that, you know, if you can get, have coping strategies, have the right exposure therapy, you know, anything's possible. Great to hear. So encouraging. So Jake, the last thing I wanted to ask you about as well is obviously you are a nutritionist now, aren't you? And you've qualified with outstanding results in nutrition last year. So would you like to just explain a bit now about how nutrition has really supported you as well in these kind of final bits of recovery and the work you're doing now? Yeah, so I mean, I was actually, what I found was that I was wanting to work out what I was going to do with sort of my life, what sort of career I'd have, like, and then I thought that, you know, in today's society that there's a lot of health conscious people that, you know, nutrition would be something that is quite source that was something that people are interested in. And then I decided to do the nutrition degree. And I think, you know, during that time, there was a lot of emphasis on nutritional education, a lot of, you know, food, you know, to heal the body. And it was sort of helpful for me in sort of getting my head around that. So yeah, I graduated last year as a nutritionist, which was pretty cool at the first degree that I'd done. And I got ducks honors for that. And now I'm an official nutritionist in Sydney and I'm a now an online nutritionist. So I can see people in Sydney or I can see them anywhere in the world, which is pretty cool. And now, yes, I'm a year out. So graduated in September. So no, just less than a year. 
Mm, wonderful. And Jake, if people want to work with you and like, you know, can you yes. explain a little bit about kind of the process that happens yes. when someone engages with you? Yeah, sure. So I've got a website. My Instagram tag is Nutrition Longevity. So I made the business called Nutrition Longevity with Jake Biggs because I definitely found that with my previous many, many multiple sessions with dietitians and nutritionists, I was just provided sort of a meal plan. I wasn't providing any education based on what I was doing. So I wanted to sort of make a business on just all about educational coaching. So I try to think of myself as not telling people what to do, but guiding them what to do. So being sort of maybe because I found that the independent side of things was so helpful. I'm sort of there as a coach in sort of when someone comes to me in wanting an individualized nutrition plan for them. I'm not always going to be telling them just exactly what to eat because I know that's not helpful. You need to provide education, flexibility, that side of things. So I've sort of made it really prided myself on being someone that provides nutritional support to anyone, whatever health goal that they have, and providing ongoing education to be sort of their own nutrition expert because I think that's really missing in today's society with sort of health professionals and providing a lot of rationale, a lot of evidence, sort of a lot of explanations. I really want to try to be a pioneer on providing sort of nutritional support to anyone, but also making sure that I'm providing ongoing education so that one day they can be their own sort of self-claimed nutritionist. It sounds fantastic. And Jake, do you work only with people with eating disorders, disordered eating, or do you work with all kinds of conditions? Yeah, no. So I'm a jack of all trades. Okay, Um, sure. Yeah. So the condition, (laughs) so with a degree that I did, we do like a multiple, I can, you know, do any, you know, health goals, health conditions, that sort of thing. So I like to think to myself and being able to cater to all. I don't want to be someone that just does with one thing. So I want to be able to support anyone that needs any nutritional help that I want and sort of bring in my expertise in finding out what stage they're at with their life, sort of what they can cope with in the sort of amount of change that they can do. But I try to think to myself of being able to cater to all. Okay, no, it's wonderful to hear. Well, Jake, I just want to really thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your story today. I think there are just so many valuable take-home messages and it's incredibly inspiring to hear how you have really had quite a journey, haven't you? And you've really been at points where, you know, you probably never thought you could exit the eating disorder. And then, of course, experiencing the tumour as well on top of that. But you have come through all of that and you have really taken that different road. And I think it's just so inspiring and encouraging. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Absolute pleasure. And I think if any listeners want to reach out to me, ask me any questions or have anything more that they'd like to ask me, I'm more than happy to answer any questions or for any phone calls, I'm more than happy to support others. Brilliant. Well, that's great, Jake. And I'll make sure that all your details, the Instagram and website, etc. in the show notes so people can contact you if they wish to. Perfect. Sounds great. Okay, thank you. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Jake's info in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And for further support with your relationship with food, 
do go to the eatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm-hmm.